Good, okay, so a very, very warm welcome to the second meeting this term of the Aristotelian Society. And it's a great pleasure for me to introduce Dominic Gregory from the University of Sheffield to give this evening's paper. Uh, Dominic's early work, as, as most of you will know, was largely in connection with modality. But more recently, he's turned his, his attention to distinctively sensory forms of representation, uh, most notably in his book, Showing, Sensing and Seeming. And his talk this evening is in that same general area. Uh, just a reminder of the format, uh, Dominic will speak first. That will be for uh, between 45 minutes and an hour. And then at that point, we'll take a brief break, a five minute break for tea or coffee. Um, at which point we'll have the question and answer session and we'll aim to finish at about 7.15. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Dominic and the title of Dominic's paper is Visual Content, Expectations and the Outside World. Okay, uh, well thank you for the invitation and thank you for coming along. Um, so I'll start by introducing some terminology and just uh, basically setting the scene for the rest of the talk. So um, I'm going to be talking about... Um, philosophy of perception, um, and in particular uh, issues in relation to vision, and um, I shall talk about the contents of visual sensations, um, where what by that I mean basically the body of phenomenologically salient conditions that, um, in the case of any particular visual sensation, determine whether or not the sensation is accurate. So basically, um, it's the contents of those visual appearances, the ways that things look to be, that are associated with the particular visual sensation at issue. And there are good questions about precisely what range of um, views, philosophical views of vision, are consistent with that general approach. But they're not issues I'm going to be tackling in this paper. Um, rather, I'll just assume that that way of talking is okay and proceed to use it. Um, so, for example, um, things look to be thus to me right now. And so the content of the visual sensation that I'm now enjoying, uh, the way that things look to me to be, is that things are thus. And so... Now, faced by this talk of the contents of visual sensations, um, it's natural to wonder what sort of materials are capable of figuring within the contents of those visual sensations, what sorts of components can figure within their contents. Um, and there are various views that people have um, endorsed in relation to that issue. Um, and in particular, some philosophers have claimed that the contents of visual sensations typically include references to potential later visual episodes that might be enjoyed by the person having the sensation. In particular, it's been claimed that the, um, the presence of such references to potential later visual sensations explains how it is that through vision we seem to encounter an outside world, which I take it we seem often to do. Now, I think that this um, view of the contents of typical visual sensations is, is mistaken and that the phenomena that those philosophers are seeking to capture are in fact better explained in a somewhat different, I think nonetheless somewhat related way that I'll outline later on in the talk. So, just to introduce a bit more detail the topic um, and some of the writers who've held this view. So here we have uh, A.D. Smith, uh, who's um, interpreting a passage from Husserl. He says that Husserl, here in the relevant passage, has the thought that a given perception would not be phenomenologically of a material object in a spatial scene at all if it didn't sustain the possibility in principle of changing your viewpoint and coming to perceive um, other non-visible portions of the same thing, and indeed objects in neighbouring regions. A possibility which, he says, we appreciate as motivated by perceptual consciousness itself. And so there I take it the idea is that um, 
To see things as situated in an external environment, um, we have to appreciate that if we were to move, we would have certain. If we were to move in certain ways, we would enjoy certain later visual episodes. Um, and the talk of this is motivated um, by perceptual consciousness itself. I take it as meaning that this is part of the content of those visual sensations. Similarly, Alvin Noe says that um, one's perceptual experience of a tomato is voluminous, depends on your tacit understanding of the ways its appearance, how it looks, depends on movement. You visually experience parts of the tomato that, strictly speaking, you don't see because you understand implicitly that your sensory relation to those parts is mediated by familiar patterns of sensory motor dependence. And then finally, Susanna Siegel, who I'm largely going to concentrate on in what follows, says this. She says that certain expectations are found at the level of visual experience, and at least the sense, this is now my gloss, that their contents are incorporated within the contents of ordinary visual sensations. And she holds that the presence of these relevant components enables us to answer the question how the phenomenal character of experiences that present public external objects differs from the phenomenal character of those that do not. The sorts of expectations that she's concerned with, um, the expectations are meant to have contents of roughly the following form. That if S, where S is the subject of a given visual experience, if S substantially changes her perspective on some apparently viewed item O, then her visual phenomenology will change as a result of this change. And so the claim is that these expectations reflect aspects of the contents of experiences of external items, with the thought being that to see something as external, right, it seems to one that this expectation will be satisfied. So the previous passages share a general idea. And that idea is that the contents of visual encounters with apparently external things, they bear upon the visual sensations that we would have if our perspectives on those apparently seen items were to alter. And so just to summarise that general idea, I'll say then that they share the general idea that visual sensations have what I'll call counterfactually subjective contents. But one might think, you know, don't the contents of ordinary visual sensations just relate, direct, just relate sorry, directly to the layouts of our surroundings? Now, why would one think that they incorporate these components relating to later visual sensations that we would have, and indeed, under, under counterfactual circumstances? Well, I think one can motivate this idea by thinking about certain sorts of expectations, very basic expectations, that are commonly associated with ordinary visual experiences. So on the back of the handout I've given, there are a couple of uh, diagrams. There's one on the left and one on the right. So suppose, for example, that things were to look the way to you that things are shown as looking by the picture on the left-hand side. Now imagine that you were to shift your viewpoint on the item that you'd thereby be apparently seeing somewhat. So you were to shift your viewpoint by going downwards a bit and somewhat to the left. Now I take it you'd expect things to look something like the way things are shown as looking by the second picture, the one on the right-hand side there. And those sorts of expectations are very elementary. So if you were to, sh if you were to see things were to look to you the way things are shown as looking by the first picture, and then you were to shift your position, and suddenly things were to, you were to apparently be confronted by a cylinder, you would be sh very shocked. Right? And I take it this very primitive form of shock reflects a general point, that the fact that one seems to see things of various sorts that are laid out in space, and which look to us to have certain three-dimensional shapes, this fact is intimately linked to certain corresponding expectations that one possesses. And these expectations, the sort just illustrated, they differ from more theoretically or more knowledge-based sorts of expectations. So, for example, my expectations concerning the way that this cup will look if I shift my head slightly to the left 
are very different to the sorts of expectations I have concerning the way it would look if someone were to set upon it with, say, a paintbrush or with a blowtorch. You know, because there, the expectations are formed through learnt knowledge, right, on the basis of past experience, whereas um, at least the if there are, if learnt facts play a role in relation to the expectations concerning changes of shape, the role they play is at least somewhat different from the kind of empirical knowledge which leads us to have expectations concerning the way that things will look if they're set upon with, say, blowtorches. So there are very elementary expectations that seem to be associated with our apparent encounters with external objects that have certain definite shapes. And so how can we cater for the elementary nature of the expectations that are present here? Well, here's one thought that someone might have. That the reason these expectations are so basic, right, why, they, for instance, they seem to be shared by um, animals and very young children, as well as possessed by adults, here's one thought one might have as to why the expectations are so elementary, namely that the contents of the expectations simply reflect the contents of the visual sensations that prompt those expectations. So there's scarcely a gap between the visual sensations and the expectations to which they give rise. But if this is right then visual sensations that feature apparent encounters with external things must have counterfactually subjective contents in the sense that I described earlier, ones that bear upon the ways that things would look to the subjects of visual sensations if those people were to shift their positions. So it might be claimed, then, that the phenomenology of everyday visual episodes indicates that apparent externality, as we were presented with it in vision, that this involves references within visual contents to the future visual sensations that we might have under certain sorts of conditions. So I think those are some kind of fairly primitive phenomenological facts that one might use to give rough motivation to the idea that the contents of visual sensations, in particular visual sensations of apparently external things, that they involve counterfactually subjective contents. What I'm now going to do is look at a a more refined set of considerations owed to Susanna Siegel um, that push for the same general idea. And then, um, in later parts, as I say, I'll basically try to attack um, the argument that she presents. So in a paper that was published um, in I forget when, um, Susanna Siegel presents a case involving um, a, very t a tiny doll and a couple of sets of visual experiences of this small doll, and the contrast between the two cases is meant to motivate the thought that in one case, the case where the thing looks to be apparently external, the visual sensations involve what I've called counterfactually subjective contents, but in the other case, counterfactually subjective contents aren't present. And in this other case, the thing doesn't look to be external, and so the thought is that the contrast between the case in which it seems to be external and the case in which it doesn't should be explained by ascribing, in the one case, counterfactually subjective contents. So Siegel asks the reader, and I'm asking you, now to imagine having an ordinary visual encounter with a tiny doll. Now in this situation, and it's a perfectly ordinary visual sensation, one's visual sensations will be accompanied by expectations whose contents could be roughly given by uh, one on the handout. And so this is the condition that if one suitably changes one's perspective on the relevant item, then one's visual phenomenology will thereby change. Right? So this is the kind of expectation, as we've seen, that we have typically in relation to external things. Now suppose, then, that in the course of this visual encounter with this tiny doll, one's visual sensations bear this expectation out as one um, 
changes one's perspective, so one's visual phenomenology changes. So take one of the experiences in this first sequence of sensations, perfectly ordinary sequence of sensations. This sensation we'll call the good one. So then Siegel asks us to suppose that after this sequence of visual sensations, the viewer, the reader, uh, departs and then comes back later on and returns again to the scene of the previous doll watching. However, this time things take a decidedly odd turn. For in this second sequence of sensations, no matter what one does, one's doll-related visual phenomenology remains constant. Right? As one moves one's eyes to the left, to the right, up, down, and so on, so the doll, the doll continues to look exactly the same. As one shuts one's eyes, the doll continues to look exactly the same. So as one changes one's perspective, one's visual phenomenology, at least in relation to the apparently seen doll, doesn't shift at all. Right. And so in the course of this second set of expectations, Siegel holds, and she's surely right to hold this, one's expectation that one on the handout, right, that you know, if you move, so your visual phenomenology will change, one's expectation that that's true will lapse. Right? And corresponding with this um, lapsed expectation, Siegel holds that the doll will come to be akin to visual items like phosphenes and afterimages, things which, we, um, which figure in visual experience, but which don't seem to be denizens of the outside world. So take one of the visual sensation towards the visual sensations that's towards the end of this second series. So this is by the point that the um, doll has come to seem phosphine-like rather than an item in the external world. So take one of these visual sensations, and let's suppose that the look of the doll um, matches the look of the doll as it's present within the good visual sensation, the ordinary one that one had earlier, suppose it matches that look of that, the doll in that sensation um, as much as it can do given, of course, the surrounding oddities. Then this chosen visual sensation, this one that to a certain degree matches the good visual sensation, but is in some respects, because of the context, somewhat different, this is the odd one. So Siegel holds that the good and the odd visual sensations, uh, quote, plainly differ phenomenally even though there's a sense in which they match one another rather closely. So what accounts then for the phenomenological contrast between the good and the odd visual sensation? So Siegel suggests that the phenomenological contrast here is to be explained in terms of the different contents that the visual sensations possess. Um, and I this seems to me to be correct, and it's not something that I'm going to take any issue with in what follows. So why does it seem to be correct? Well, because the phenomenological contrast between the good and the odd cases um, seems to come from the fact that the apparent doll that figures in the first case, the good one, there it looks to be external, right, in the outside world. But the doll figuring in the odd case doesn't look to be external. Right? And I take it that this is, um, whatever in more detail it might amount to, a difference in the content of the two visual sensations. As I say, anyway, that's not something I'm going to argue with. So... Siegel suggests then that the phenomenological difference reflects a difference in the content of the visual sensations. And so in, what in more detail might one say about how the contents of those sensations do indeed differ? Well, Siegel holds that um, what she calls the simple contents of the good and the odd experiences are plausibly the same. The doll in the odd case, now I'm quoting, doesn't seem to be behind you. It seems to be in front of you. As the case is described, in each experience, the doll looks to have the same colour, shape and texture properties, the faces look the same, the hair looks the same, and so on. 
Yet how else, one might wonder, how else could the contents of Siegel's good and odd cases differ? Well, one clear difference between the two cases has already been identified, namely that in the good case, one has expectations of the form given by one on the handout, but in the odd case, one does not. And so Siegel suggests that this is not just a difference that, as it were, corresponds to the difference between the contents of the good and the odd visual sensations. Rather, she says it basically gives us the difference between the contents of the good and the odd visual sensations. She suggests that we should explain the phenomenological contrasts that she's noted, in fact, a difference of content, by relating it to the fact that in one case one has expectations of the form given by one, but in the other case one doesn't. So she suggests then this, that the visually apparent externality of the doll that figures in the good case corresponds to the fact that the conditional um, given as one on the handout, which provides the uh, features in the contents of the expectation one ordinarily has, that the content of that conditional actually forms part of the, the content of the good visual sensation. Right? It captures some of the conditions under which that sensation will or will not be accurate. By contrast, she, she suggests that the phosphine-like status of the doll featuring in the odd case corresponds to the fact that the conditional one doesn't form part of that sensation's content. So she seeks to explain the contrast between the two cases in terms of difference between their content, and she claims that the difference between their content should be explained by saying that the conditional one, counterfactually subjective conditional one, forms part of the content of the good case, but not of the odd case. But of course, the good visual sensation is a typical visual sensation. It's just, a, as it were, a standard visual sensation in which one seems to see some external item. But the odd visual sensation, the one in which conditional one supposedly does not form part of the content, this is decidedly odd. So it's claimed then that we should accept that conditionals having the form provided by one on the handout, that they figure within the contents of ordinary visual sensations, and that they account, in fact, for how it is that we manage to see things as external to us. So before um, looking in more detail at how one might otherwise explain the difference, the contrast between the good and the odd cases, um, I think it's worth thinking just about whether this view Siegel suggests is um, intuitively very plausible. And I think that um, reflection upon possible cases might lead one reasonably to wonder whether the conditions that Siegel places upon typical visual sensations by locating one as part of their content, whether those claims about the contents of visual sensations aren't a little strong. So, for instance, stay still for a few moments, having registered some scene through one's eyes. Now, did the visually apparent externality, the items that you just seem to see, did that visually apparent externality itself imply that had you substantially altered your perspective upon the relevant scene during the time in which you, in fact, stayed stock still, then things would have looked different to you. Right? So you've stayed still, right? things didn't change. But the question is, does the fact that things look to you to be external in the course of those sensations require that had you moved, in fact, you didn't, but had you moved, then things visually would have changed for you? Right? This is consequence of Siegel's account. Well, assume that that implication is indeed present. But now let's also conjure into existence um, an evil demon, 
one who would have frozen your visual phenomenology if, instead of staying still right, during the relevant period, you had shifted your position. Right. So this evil demon can be as remote, utterly invisible, um, and nowhere, not present within your visual environment at all. Right. Now, given that we've made this supposition about the presence of this evil demon, who, had you moved, would have frozen your visual phenomenology, if it's the case that things only look to be external to you if um, the visual sensation contains as part of its content the condition that if you were to move, then things visually would change for you, then it follows that the presence of this visual, sorry, the presence of this evil demon itself implies that the visual sensation which you had during the period, period in which you stayed still right, was in fact inaccurate, right, because it just isn't the case that had you moved, things would have looked visually different for you. Right. And it seems to me that this is a somewhat implausible implication of writing the conditional one into the contents of ordinary visual sensations. It seems to me, right, this is not a knockdown argument, this is just an intuition pump, but it seems to me that it's more natural to suppose that your recent visual sensations, the ones you had in the period in which you stood stock, sat stock still, that they were accurate just in case, well, the visible portions of the outside world were arranged in an appropriate manner relative to the perspective that you occupied. Right? Um, it's tempting, I think, to suspect in particular that the apparent externality of the things that you recently seemed to see pertained, well, simply to their apparent natures at the very times that you seemed to see them, right? rather than to facts about how things might have stood sensorially for you at later times. So I think um, reflection on cases like that might make one think that Siegel's view is intuitively somewhat implausible. Um, and so that might motivate the question, you know, is there some other way of accounting for the differences that Siegel remarks, differences which are, I think are real ones, some way of accounting for those differences without ascribing counterfactually subjective contents to visual sensations? Well, I think... Um, that there is another way of accounting for those differences, and so I'm going to suggest one. But before that, I need to just develop some background materials um, relating to ways things look from perspectives, which I'll then use to um, provide an alternative explanation. So consider, then, the, um, the fairly banal point that things tend to look different from different perspectives. Well, that thought might be taken to amount to something like the following claim, that the precise nature of the various visual sensations enjoyed by some subject who's viewing an object, that they generally depend upon the relationships holding between the subject's perspective and the object itself. Right, now, this way of reading the claim that things look different from different perspectives is a kind of experiential one. Right? It relates it to the ways that things look for um, perceivers. But I don't think that this experiential construal of the claim is, in fact, forced upon us, because I think that um, even within fairly ordinary thought, you know, when one thinks about cameras as photographs, sorry, as showing us the ways that things looked from perspectives, I think within ordinary thought, the idea of a way that things look from a perspective is not essentially a subjective idea. So, for example, um, consider, consider some perspective just next to me, right, which I'll call P. Right. Now, you may well have, um, actually, probably haven't, but if you had the right information, if you had my information, you might well have a good idea of what things look like from that perspective. And it's likely that if you were to assess what things look like from that perspective, you would think about the ways things would look to you if you were to occupy 
that perspective. And that's not surprising, because I think thinking about the ways things would look to us if we were to occupy perspectives is a useful way of figuring out what things actually look like. But the fact that things actually look a certain way from some perspective, say this one that I'm gesturing at off to my right, the fact that things look some way from a perspective certainly doesn't reduce to the fact that things would look that way to you or I if you or I were to occupy that perspective. Well, why not? So another evil demon can be um, conjured at this point. Because suppose that another evil demon would ensure that if you or I or anyone were to occupy this perspective off to my right, then you'd have a visual sensation in which you seem to see a massive shape of the sort, say, shown in the left-hand figure on the back of the handout. Then under those conditions, the way that things would look to you if you were to occupy this perspective, indeed any of the perspectives in this room, certainly would not be a way that things would look, in fact, from that perspective. Well, why not? Because you'd be having a visual sensation in which things look to you to be a certain way, but things are not, are not that way, really, relative to this perspective. Right? The visual sensation you'd be having, the type of visual sensation, right, the way things would look to you, would not capture what things are in fact like around the perspective at which I'm gesturing. By contrast, right, there may be somewhere in the world another perspective around which things are indeed the way that they would look to you if you were to have a visual sensation in which you seem to see a shape of the sort shown in figure one. Right? And in that case, right, the way that things would look to you if you were to have a visual sensation of that thought would indeed be um, a way that things look from whatever visual perspective it is that's like that. Why? Well, because it would capture what things are like around that perspective. So, more generally, suppose that we're given a way for things to look, call it T, right? a type of visual sensations. And suppose that associated with this way for things to look, with this type of visual sensations, are certain ways that things invariably look to be to the subjects of visual sensations of that type. So certain visual appearances that are shared by all the visual sensations of the relevant kind. Right? So um, it might be that this, in this type of visual sensations one seems to see a shape of a certain sort, for example, the sort of shape shown in uh, figure one, or the left-hand figure, sorry, on the handout. Now suppose that the contents of these visual appearances, the ones that are invariably associated with this type of visual sensations, suppose that they could be summarised by saying that anyone who has a visual sensation of this type will be such that to them things always look to be thus. Then I'll say that the appearance content of this type of visual sensations, just what summarises the way that things invariably look to be to people who have visual sensations of this kind, the appearance content of this type of visual sensations is things being thus. Okay, so consider some perspective, some viewpoint P. Then an arbitrary type of visual sensations T is a way that things look from this perspective just in case what? Well, it's just in case that way for things to look captures what things are like around the perspective. Right, we saw that earlier um, when I ran through cases to soften you up for all this stuff. But generalising from the previous discussion, right, if this type of visual sensations has as its appearance content, things being thus, so anyone who has a visual sensation of this kind seems to see a scene in which things are thus, what it will be for this type of visual sensations to catch what things are like around a perspective is just this. It's for things to be thus relative to that perspective. Right. So 
putting everything together, right? This way for things to look is a way that things look from a perspective, if and only if things are thus relative to the perspective, or to use the um, talk of appearance contents that I just introduced, if and only if the way for things to look has an appearance content which is true relative to the perspective. So this is all summarised on the handout um, as two under point five. So here then is an account of what it is for things to look a certain way from a perspective. Given a way for things to look T, a type of visual sensations, it's a way that things look from some perspective P, just in case the appearance content of that way for things to look is true relative to the given perspective. And so this simply um, captures, with some jargon, really, the fairly simple point that things look a certain way from a perspective, just in case that way for things to look captures what things are actually like around the perspective. Now, our visual sensations are generally, I think, accompanied by expectations concerning the ways that things look from other perspectives. So, for example, returning again to the figures on the back of the handout, suppose things were to look to you the way that things are shown as looking on the left-hand figure. Then, you'd expect things also to look roughly the way that figure t the right-hand image shows things as looking from other suitably situated perspectives. Right? I take it when we see those uh, computer-generated things that instance, take you around a shape, what's being revealed is the way that the shape looks from other perspectives, not, ne not necessarily to a viewer, but from perspectives that are suitably related to the thing that's shown. So what I'm now going to do then is relate this idea that we have expectations in the course of ordinary vision relating to the ways that things look from other perspectives, I'll relate that to the idea of visually apparent externality and use it to offer an alternative to Siegel's position. So, suppose that we're given some way for things to look, um, T. So this way for things to look may involve the presence of various sorts of visual items in the following sense. Um, it may be that anyone who has a visual sensation of the relevant type thereby has a visual sensation that features visual items of the relevant kind. Anyone who has a visual sensation of the kind that I'm now having, for instance, will seem to see some chairs right, and some people on them as well. So this way, arbitrary way for things to look will involve an apparently external table of a particular sort, for example, just in case anyone who has a sensation of the relevant kind, anyone to whom things look that way, thereby seems to see an apparently external table of the relevant kind. And the way for things to look might involve a certain pattern of phosphenes or an afterimage, just in case anyone who has a sensation of the relevant kind thereby enjoys a visual sensation that features some phosphenes that instantiate whatever this pattern that we're concerned with is. So consider some subject who has a sensation of this arbitrary type. So let's suppose, to begin with, that this way for things to look does involve an apparently external item, perhaps an apparently external table. Then it looks to anyone who has a sensation of the kind that we're considering as though a table is present within outside space. That is, it looks to the person as though a table is present within a space that includes his or her perspective, but which simultaneously includes lots of other perspectives as well, right? ones which are going to relate differently to the apparently seen table. So the presence of the apparently external table within our subject's visual sensation is going to correspond to the subject's possession of appropriate expect expectations relating to the ways that things then look from perspectives that are distinct from her own. 
right? Because the table seems to be present within a space that includes not just her perspective, but loads of others as well. Right. The thing is in the round, as it were. In particular, it's going to see to the seem to the subject, sorry, that things must then look different to the way that things look to her from at least some perspectives that are suitably located in relation to the apparently external table. Because the table is going to seem to stand in varying relationships to the many perspectives that are included within the external space that apparently incorporates the subject's perspective um, and also the table itself. Right. And these varying relationships holding between the subject's perspective but also these other perspectives and the table that's apparently seen, these are going to be registered in the different ways that things look, right, the different ways that things are, around the other perspectives that are present within the space that includes the subject's perspective. Now, even the ways that the most uniform external things look from perspectives that are very near to them are very different to the ways that they look from perspectives that are sufficiently far away. Now, by contrast, suppose that um, the, way that the, the way for things to look that we're considering involves a visual item that isn't apparently external, say a phosphine or a pattern of phosphines. Well, the presence within the subject's visual sensation of the phosphine isn't going to seem to the subject to have any consequences at all for the ways that things look at that very time from the perspectives distinct from her own. Right? Because the phosphine doesn't look to be present in a space that includes the subject's perspective and also other perspectives. So the phosphine's visual presence is not going to lead the subject to expect that things look, then look different from any other suitably located perspectives. Well, generally then, suggests that the contrast between these two cases motivates the following idea, that the, the presence of apparently external items within vision corresponds to the possession of expectations concerning the ways that things then look from other perspectives. And so what I'm now going to do then is to use that idea to construct an alternative to Siegel's counterfactually subjective explanation of the contrast between her good and odd cases, and then generalise that to a suggestion about content of all visual sensations in which we seem to encounter external things. So going back to Siegel's um, example, let's reconsider her good case, the case in which the doll seems to be there and seems to be in the outside world. So this visual sensation features an encounter with an apparently external doll. So in this case, um, the apparent doll's seeming externality, and hence its location in a space that contains other perspectives besides one's own, this is going to lead you to have expectations having the following form, and this is uh, three on the handout. It's going to lead you to expect that things then, you know, at the time you're having the sensation, things then look different to the way that they look to you from some perspectives that are suitably located in relation to the relevant item, in this case, the apparently seen doll. Right? So you're going to expect that there are suitably located perspectives from which things look different to the way that they look to you in the course of your sensation, because the thing looks to you to be apparently external. But in the light of um, the account that I gave earlier of what it is for things to look a certain way from a perspective, note that the content of the expectations that I claim we have in the good case, these just concern, concern sorry, the nature of the world around certain perspectives. They're not what I've called counterfactually subjective expectations. They don't relate to later visual sensations that we or anyone else might have. They just concern the ways things look from perspectives at the very time one has the visual sensation. So let's again then compare the good and the odd case. 
So at the start of the sequence of visual sensations leading to Siegel's odd case, one naturally presumes either that a real doll is behaving very weirdly or that one's having a, an hallucinatory experience of an external item. The way the case goes is this, I take it, that by the time of the odd sensation, the, um, the dogged recurrence of this same thing in one's visual field, right, um, leads the expectation that the doll will look different as you move, leads that to lapse, but the completely localised nature of this recurrent oddity um, leads one back to one's usual assumption that insofar as one's visual apparatus is informing one about the external world, it's working fine. Rather, what's going on is that the doll that one's seeing will get simply written off as a visual item which has no bearing, in the manner of, say, phosphines, has no bearing upon what the outside world is really like. And one's eventual adoption of this attitude towards the doll will be mirrored by a shift in the expectations that one possesses. In particular, the presence of the doll within the later elements of this sequence that contain the odd visual sensation, the presence of the doll is not going to seem to you to have any bearing upon the ways that things look from other perspectives besides your own. Right. And so the presence of the doll is not going to lead you to have expectations of the form given not just by one on the handout, but also three on the handout. Right. As the sequence goes along, so you will cease to expect that the presence of this thing has implications for the ways that things look from perspectives other than one's own. So if this is right, then the counterfactually subjective expectational difference between the good and the odd cases that Siegel notes, that counterfactually subjective difference is also accompanied by a categorical and objective expectational difference, one that relates to the ways that things look from perspectives rather than the ways that things would look to us. I think that this observation indicates how we can provide an alternative to Siegel's own content-based explanation of the differences between her good and odd cases. Because it can be claimed that three, on the handout, as applied to the apparently seen doll in the good case, that this figures within the content of Siegel's good case, whereas the content of the odd case does not feature the conditional. Uh, is it a conditional? No, it's not a conditional. The condition, sorry, given by three on the handout. So... There's a change in expectations, right, which is registered by the dropping of three as an expectation, and just as in Siegel's, expect uh, Siegel's explanation, so one could seek to explain the difference between her good and odd cases by saying that this expectational difference mirrors a difference in the content. In the good case, three is present as part of the content. In the odd case, it isn't. Right? But this is a difference which is not counterfactually subjective. So it can be claimed, then, that these other differences of content, rather than the ones deduced by Siegel, are perhaps responsible for the phenomenological contrast between her good and odd cases. So just to conclude, then, I just want to consider um, some reasons why one might perhaps prefer this explanation of the contrast between her good and odd cases to Siegel's own account of the difference. So one obvious complaint about Siegel's view is that it overcomplicates the contents of standard visual sensations. And I think one might be tempted to level the same complaint against the view that I've endorsed here. And to be honest, I have a certain amount of sympathy for... A, this, I think, is a gen... This, this worries me. Um, yeah. But anyway, I'll have a go at um, trying to see off uh, or deflect this worry somewhat. So the view that um, the condition given as three on the handout, the view that this captures aspects 
of the contents of typical visual sensations clearly does ascribe to ordinary visual sensations a certain level of complexity. But is it an, is it an inappropriate level of complexity given certain phenomena that one might reasonably wish to capture? So suppose that you have a visual sensation in which things look to you the way that things are shown as looking um, on, say, the left of the image on the back of a handout. Well, that sensation involves an apparent encounter with an external item that has a particular shape. So the visual sensation thus presents the item that you seem to see as bearing a panoply of varying relationships to a host of perspectives that are also situated within the external space that you seem to see. And the condition given as three on the handout simply provides a way of registering that point in terms of the idea of ways that things look from perspectives in hopefully fairly elementarily visual terms. I mean, there's a certain level of complexity there, but you know, it's at least in some senses tr true to vision. And, but anyway, how could one register this varying series of relationships and the complexity which inevitably does involve, which is surely present in one's visual experience of apparently external things, how could one register that without ascribing at least that much complexity to the contents of ordinary visual sensations, one might say. And anyway, at least the proposed view doesn't suffer from the potentially active but actually inactive evil demon type problems that I presented as providing intuitive reasons for doubting Siegel's view earlier. Right. So to see that these aren't a problem, note that although the evil demon that I introduced um, in relation to Siegel's view, although this evil demon was capable of scrambling the ways that things looked to you in the moments following certain sensations, it was not capable at the very time that you had the sensation able to affect the ways that things looked, right, in the sense of the ways that things were, around the perspectives that you occupied. Right? Rather, the actual layout of your surroundings at the time of your sensation settled the ways that things actually looked from your perspective at that time and from the other perspectives near to you. What an evil demon could do to your visual faculties in the moments following your visual sensation has no bearing upon those facts. It is undeniable, though, that visual encounters with apparently external things generally are accompanied by counterfactually subjective expectations of the sorts focused upon by Siegel and others. And as I remarked earlier, these expectations are clearly very elementary, basic ones. So why are these expectations there? and What is elementary about them? Something needs to be said about that. Well, consider a visual episode which features an apparent encounter with an external thing, say Siegel's good case. Well, I've claimed that the item's visually apparent externality leads to your having expectations that have the form given by three on the back of the handout. Um, on the back of the handout. You expect, then, that things will look different from perspectives that are situated around the side of the doll. Just as the things that you're seeing now, you expect, will look different from perspectives that are round at their sides rather than face on where you are. But just as a matter of fact, I think you will also naturally make an assumption like the following one. You'll assume that if you were to occupy those other perspectives, the ones nearby, around the side, in the immediate future, if you were to occupy those perspectives in the immediate future, then the ways that things would look to you would reflect the different relationships that would still then hold between the doll that we're supposing to be present and the perspective that you'd then have come to occupy. Right. So, putting it 
more simply, right? We take it that when we see apparently external things, things look different from nearby perspectives that are different from our own. But we take it that when we move to those perspectives, things will remain constant enough that as we move to them, the ways things will look to us will reflect the ways things actually look from those perspectives, and hence that things will look different to us upon moving. So in thinking then about the ways that things will look to us in the immediate future upon shifting our positions, we all just do naturally assume that we will visually register salient and relatively stable visible aspects of our environments. So I think then that our expectations in the good case about the ways that things would look to us if we were to move, the expectations that Siegel cites, um, these result from two more basic factors. First of all, they result from our expectations concerning the different ways that things then look to us at the times we have visual sensations from suitably located perspectives besides our own. And second, one's natural presumption that one's visual sensations in the immediate future will register what things really are like. Right. And I take it that these two facts then lead us to have counterfactually subjective expectations of the sort um, endorsed, uh, cited by Siegel. So as a result of these two factors, then one expects one's visual phenomenology to alter when one moves um, in the wake of seeing things that look to us to be external. But the counterfactually subjective expectations, if this is right, the counterfactually ex subjective expectations that one possesses in the good case, these are not, as Siegel claims, found at the level of visual experience, but they do nonetheless flow in part from notable aspects of visual content, ones which aren't, however, um, counterfactually subjective, um, and I think all the better for that. Um, I'll stop there.